Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about Moon Knight, episode one, The Goldfish Problem. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Soretta, and joining me once again is Slash Film Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Brad, we're back. There's a new TV show for us to talk about. Yes. Are you excited? Uh, yes. For for the yeah, for the most part, I would say. We have seen the first four episodes of Moon Knight, but we will not spoil any of the upcoming episodes. We're only talking about episode one. Although we we could, in our brief reaction here, give a reaction, our spoiler-free reaction to what we've seen thus far. Uh, so, uh, Brad, let me throw it over to you. What do you think of Moon the four episodes of Moon Knight that you've seen thus far? Uh, for the most part, I enjoy it. Um, it is it's definitely different from the previous Marvel Studios TV shows we've seen on Disney Plus, and it seems like whenever a new Marvel movie or show comes along, some critic always manages to say that. But this is the first time <laughs> that I this is the first time since WandaVision that I actually genuinely believe it's true, and largely because of the kind of character that Moon Knight is, uh, and also because of the performance that 
uh, Oscar Isaac gives and how the narrative is presented because of the character or characters, as it were, uh, that he plays. And so it creates this interesting presentation of the narrative where as an audience member, uh, you're confused and on this roller coaster ride with Oscar Isaac's character, Stephen Grant, as he discovers that he has this alternate personality named Mark Spector, who is dealing with some mystical, dangerous things because he is imbued with the powers of this Egyptian god named Khonshu and has uh, has to deal with some nefarious people and, and whatnot. So it's... Wait, wait, can I interrupt you here for, for a second? Because yeah. I also had in my notes that this is like so different than what Marvel has done before. And I've seen that. You know, we're not the only people saying that. Everybody's saying that. Um, and, and you said that like... Uh, you brought up an interesting point here because I feel like we've been saying this a lot recently. You know what I mean? Like WandaVision came out and we said that. Shang-Chi came out. We said that. The Eternals came out. We're like, this is so different. Like when when does Marvel get credit of being not like a singular thing? Like I feel like they're doing so many different things now. I th- I think some of it is like some of these statements I think become a little broad because like – uh, I think stuff like Eternals and Shang-Chi, they do do uh, some things different, um, but at the core, they still they very much have that Marvel Studios DNA. Uh, and much like WandaVision, I feel like the presentation of the narrative, uh, the the story of this, this superhero, the fact that it's not really like uh, a proper origin story or anything like that... Um, is like there are tons of things that set Moon Knight apart as opposed to just like a few snippets, you know, that that make it different. So that's that's why I think this time it really does stand uh, stand alone. And especially because this is also a series where there are not um, many like more than a couple uh, direct ties or like Easter eggs to the Marvel Cinematic Universe at large. It is mostly devoid of any connective tissue to things that have happened in the MCU anywhere. It's the story of Moon Knight so far uh, stands alone. And that's, that's been really interesting to see and kind of refreshing because it, it you, you don't feel these little details and stuff sh- shoehorn into it. And so for me, I just, I, I like how this story is unfolding. Now we've seen the first four episodes, so we've seen more than uh, what listeners have seen out there. And I think that that helped because the story unfolds at a little bit of a slower pace, and it feels more like a narrative that you would see in a movie rather than a series. This is honestly, I think, the first time in a while where I've felt like um, the the narrative really does lend itself better to a what would be a longer movie rather than a TV series, and sometimes to its detriment. It doesn't feel like <laughs> necessarily uh, the storytelling lends itself to an episodic nature, uh, making the, the breaks between episodes feel inorganic even and, this episode feels like the the end break doesn't feel like the end of a tv episode yeah exactly you know um it's like it i'm surprised that they didn't show that the like give the first two episodes you know to kind of help set the stage a little bit better for for this character um but there is a compelling narrative here and it is driven by oscar isaac who gives a fantastic performance as both stephen grant and mark specter uh, and it's really interesting to see how how it plays out. Um, there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of unanswered questions that kind of keep the narrative compelling and interesting. And uh, I'm I'm definitely curious to see what happens in the the last two episodes. But uh, yeah, overall, um, I think a satisfying, unique uh, display from from Marvel Studios. It's also interesting too because a lot of these Marvel shows on Disney Plus 
have kind of like held back on the villain. Like the villain reveal is in like the last two episodes kind of thing. And I mean, I don't know that that's the case with Moon Knight because, you know, there's Egyptian gods and all this stuff. But like, it really seems like from, you know, the first shot of this that we know who the bad guy is. And but by the end of this episode, we know who he's, you know, trying to help. Do you know what I mean? Like it, 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 it seems less of a mystery box yeah. than the other Marvel shows, which is is interesting that they're taking that approach. Because um, I know that was a criticism for some people and other people. That was a you know a feature. So uh, I I agree with everything you said. I, I don't know what Oscar Isaac is doing here. It, at times, it seems way over the top, but uh, much in the way of you know Tom Hardy and Venom. Um, but it's for some reason loving it. But it's yeah. But it's not that same kind of performance though. Like, yeah. to, to, like Tom Hardy is really hamming it up, and like Oscar Isaac is he's giving an authentic performance. It's just so different from anything we've seen him do before because it's this this awkward fumbling, <laughs> you know, oddball British guy who has is like caught caught up like in the wrong place at the wrong time has no idea what's going on. Yeah, and I I noted here in my notes that this might be one of the most creative entry points into like a multiple personality storyline. But then after I wrote that, Brad, I was like, well, you know, Fight Club did something like that. You know, there's been many things have kind of done this, but I guess they haven't done it in the way that, like, we only see the one personality's thing and it jumps forward and then we see the results. Have we seen that before? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, he was, like, in the act, like, uh, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll go beat by beat. But there's that scene where, like, they're trying to remove the scarab from his hands. And then, like, he blacks out and then he, he comes through and he has blood all over his hands. The people are dead. Like, I feel like we haven't seen the intercutness. Uh, like, usually it's held a mystery until, like, the, like, last, you know, few scenes of a story when it's done in this kind of reveal way. Yeah, it's definitely a unique uh, situation in how it's depicted for sure. Um because even Fight Club, like that's something that is eventually revealed. I think that maybe the closest that we've come, and it, it's only like a couple times, if I remember correctly, but uh, in Me, Myself, and Irene, which has a com- uh. comedic display of schizophrenia, there are a couple times when uh, the story like cuts away uh, from a from a scene where it seems like something could have happened, and you don't necessarily know. And then later, like you find out that Jim Carrey's more destructive personality took over, and he did something really shitty. <laughs> um, but other, but other, but otherwise, most of it was like on camera with him switching back and forth, you know, without any cutting like that. Yeah, totally. Um, the other thing, I, I don't think it's as much in this episode as it is in the the three that are going to follow, but this seems a lot more larger scale and more exotic in, in the locations it goes to. Like, it seems kind of just bigger in moments where, like, I, I feel like some of the other Marvel shows were like, you know, we're going to set this action scene in a toy store. Or, you know, this whole... <laughs> yeah, because even even though Falcon and the Winter Soldier was a globe-trotting uh, adventure, that, that didn't feel very big either. You know, the yeah. locations felt kind of small. And here, yeah, you really get a sense of the scale of, of Egypt and, like, the sets that they made for, like, the... Um, for pyramids and all that sort of stuff. They're really impressive. Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, let's get into this because I, I think we're, like, dancing around some stuff. Uh, so episode one is titled The Goldfish Problem... Brad, you know what I'm going to say. Why is it called the goldfish problem? Uh, well, that seems to be tied to uh, Stephen Grant's goldfish, which uh, is one of the clues that there's something 
weird going on in his life beyond just having what he seems to think is a sleeping disorder. Yeah. I was also thinking maybe there's something too, because like why a goldfish in goldfish, like there's that joke about the goldfish swimming in his tank and like, you know, like them having a short memory span of like not remembering what just happened. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I'm wondering if there's like, maybe that's the reason why they picked the goldfish. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, so this this episode begins, this first episode begins not with our main character, but with the villain, Ethan Hawke's character, uh, and Arthur, do you know his last name? Harrow? Harrow. Harrow. Um, and we see him, he breaks some glass, he puts in the sandals, and he, he walks away with glass in his sandals. And, you know, in our Slack channel, I asked this morning, I was like, does anybody know why he does that? Because I don't think it's ever, like, explicitly explained why he walks around in the, the broken glass. And, and, Brad, you had an answer. Yeah, so this is basically uh, what is known as self-flagellation. And it's uh, the act of basically disciplining or punishing yourself uh, physically as a form of religious discipline. Uh, this is something people might remember either reading about or seeing in the Da Vinci Code. The uh, the albino monk Silas is seen hurting himself with a uh, cat of nine tails uh, doing self-flagellation to himself. And this seems to be kind of a, a form of that. Yeah. And um, a writer, Van- Vanessa Armstrong, pointed out that Ethan Hawke uh, gave an answer to this and to the Hollywood Reporter because they asked him about it, and it, it turned out he actually came up with this. So he said, uh, "Here, here's the quote. I love comic books, so I went to the directors and said, if you were looking at a really good comic book, there's usually one full-page drawing of the villain. Uh, whether a page has four drawings, eight drawings, every now and then they have this full-page drawing. So I was like, what would the full-page drawing be that introduces Haro? what is his secret that you would want to let the audience in on? And then they turned it back and to me and said, well, would you tell us what you think it is? And I was always hypnotized by deeply spiritual people who are self lacerating. You hear stories about all these saints and how they would wear their hair shirts or whip themselves. Uh, So I always was like, I thought we were supposed to love each other and be kind. What is all the self moralization? What what is that about? So I had this vision of him pouring glass into his shoes and listening to Bob Dylan, and then I explained that to them, and they were like, "Let's do that." So, so th- there's your answer. It, 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 this first scene was actually uh, envisioned by Ethan Hawke, and. Um, I'm wondering if he had the idea of the Bob Dylan song because there's a Bob Dylan song playing here that uh, is, uh, the title is Every Grain of Sand, which um, when I looked that up, Brad, at first I thought maybe that's just because Egypt and sands, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, Bob Dylan uh, was a born-again Christian, and right after he became born again, a, a couple of years later, the song came out, and it's it's very much about has allusions to Jesus, faith, and spirituality. You know, in the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand in every leaf that trembles and every grain of sand. So I, I think, um, I, I don't know. I think there might be multiple reasons why they chose this song. So. Yeah, sounds about right. Okay, uh, so 
Oscar Isaac, his character is named Steven, or one of the characters is named Steven. And he has a problem with apparently like waking up in the middle of the night and going sleepwalking uh, so much so that he has shackles his feet to the bed. He puts sand around his bed. He tapes his door with like some kind of duct tape or something uh, just to see if in the morning he has actually, you know, escaped himself. Uh, Yet every morning he wakes up and he feels like he's gotten hit by a bus. And here we see he wakes up and the tape is neatly there. The sand has not been moved. His legs have not been unshackled. So I guess the question I have to you, Brad, is he, he does this every night. Yeah, every night he wakes up or every morning he wakes up feeling like he hit, got hit by a bus. And obviously he's been going out as Mark. How does he do that and not disturb all the precautions he's taken? One would imagine that Mark Spector is just that good at being <laughs> able to do that without raising any red flags. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he is a mercenary, right? So he could uh, he just puts the tape on after he comes in the door. Right. Puts the tape back on. Yeah, I, I guess it makes sense. He just knows where the keys are to the shackles because the keys must be within close proximity, right? So You like, would think so. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Okay, um, we also see Stevens getting some postcards. Do we know who the postcards are being sent from? I don't think so. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because I don't even think we know from our future knowledge of stuff. So I'm wondering if that's going to come into play because there's like postcards of all sorts of like Egyptian kind of things and stuff. Maybe because is he, I don't remember, is he receiving them in the mail or he just, he just have them? I think he was receiving because I think he got one, a new one. I just watched the episode. But I, could be, uh, I think he just received a new one in the mail and he taped it up next to the fish. Um, but I could be wrong. Um, so also, I think the thing that everybody's asking at this point in time is, uh, what is this accent that Oscar Isaac is doing here? I mean, it's, it's a great accent, you know, it's just like, it's, it's definitely a little bit, uh, uh, Dickensian in a way, but it's, you know, (laughs) it's that kind of, you know, charming, awkward, you know, befuddled kind of, kind of accent where, you know, he, he feels like, a just a, a lost man. <laughs> I love the shot of him on the bus to work and he, fo- he like falls asleep on another person. Now, that has never happened to me, Brad, but I have fallen asleep on, on a bus before. Oh, for sure. Actually, like, set my alarm. Like, have you fallen asleep on a bus? I'm just wondering. Uh, yeah, not like on a crowded bus. Like, I've been on, like, a, a long shuttle ride to and from, like, an airport, you know, and fallen asleep, you know, uh, in, in my seat, but not, like, on somebody or anything. I I used to live in San Francisco and I would take the bus from where I lived in the outer Richmond district into downtown for either like, you know, movie screenings or whatever. And I would usually have to get up super early in the morning to go to these. And sometimes I'd get on the bus and set my alarm because I knew like I knew, you know, just how long it was going to take to get downtown. Yeah. And I would just fall asleep. (laughs) It's not (laughs) like I had anything like expensive on me or whatever. And like, you know, no one was going to be able to get to my wallet or whatever. So I just fall asleep and my, my phone will wake me up. But I, I've never fallen asleep on another person. That's that's another level there. But um, okay, so Steven is this guy who no one respects. He works in a gift shop in the National Art Gallery selling stupid merchandise, uh, but has aspirations of being a tour guide and demonstrates his historical knowledge to a little girl and actually later his boss. 
um because he he schools his boss about how there's only seven of the nine egyptian gods of uh on, on the exhibition poster so uh i'm sure those gods will come into play at some point in the series uh so he he also finds that he asked a woman out from work he doesn't remember any of that but it's apparently something uh, his alternate personality did and he, he doesn't seem to know that he has an alternate personality i do you think at this point he just thinks he's forgets things i don't think he's entirely sure on what's going on it seems like he thinks he has some kind of like sleeping disorder like some kind of sleep intense sleepwalking thing and he doesn't really have much of an idea of what's going on yeah uh i also think it's funny that he asked this woman out to like a steak restaurant and steven is clearly uh vegan but mark apparently is a carnivore so it's the same person but they have different right (laughs) different philosophies there yeah so um so Mark has clearly been at Steven's job at some point because not only did he ask that woman out, but also the security guard calls him Mark. Um, he, his only friend is this guy who poses as a steel statue outside his work that he talks to. And the guy doesn't even talk back. And I learned on slash film. Did you read this piece, Brad, that there's actually a comic book connection for this character? Yeah, the, at least the, the the look for this character um, could he seemingly be a comic book character who has ties to to Moon Knight, and so there's there seemed to be some hint there yeah. that that I could be where this character is. Yeah, the actor is named Sean Scott, and he's credited as Crawley in the credits. in In the comics, there's a character named Bernard or Bert Brand Carly Crawley. Sorry, I'm pronouncing these wrong. Who is part of uh, Mark's inner circle? And in the comics, he's like homeless in the streets of New York and he meets one of Mark's alter egos and uh, he is given a position to be taxed as an informant uh, and is put on the payroll uh, thanks to Stephen's wealth. And he gathers intel for Moon Knight off and on ever since then. So, so there's that. So that might come into play or maybe this is just, you know, sometimes uh, Marvel likes to just put those like references in just to, uh, you know, make comic book fans happy. So we'll see. What do you think, Brad? Do you think this is going to come to play later or do you think it's just a fun reference? Yeah, I mean, these kinds of things, especially if it's a character that, uh, you know, Steven seems to be confiding in. I feel like that's like a mystery that's just waiting to be uh, unraveled. Unraveled, yeah. Okay, so the next big thing that happens is, uh, well, shit goes down. Steven wakes up laying in a field outside what looks to be a German village. At least there's like a castle, a German-looking castle in the background. And not only does he wake up in the field, but he has a dislocated jaw that looks really painful. And uh, this is when he starts hearing the voice in his head telling him to surrender the body to Mark. Uh, this voice is someone we recognize. Do you Indeed. know who this voice is? Yeah, F. Murray Abraham. Yeah, so he, uh, you might know him. He has won an Oscar for Amadeus. He had a lot of critical acclaim and awards for the TV show Homeland. He was in, he's been in a lot of stuff. He's been acting since the early 70s. Grand Budapest Hotels. One of the more recent big things that I think people might recognize him from. 
Um, but he, am I correct in he's just doing the voice? Yeah, because I'm pretty sure that's a fully digital character. Okay. So he discovers that he he looks up, he sees that the there's a in this house or castle or whatever, there's this window that's broken, and he discovers he 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 jumped out that window and he looks in his pocket, he has a golden scarab. So and there's these two people start sh- uh, shooting at him and chasing him. So he he has stolen this golden scarab as Mark, and now he is Steven on the run. And uh, in the escape, he joins a group of people that uh, go to a gathering in the streets to witness um, what is going on here with Arthur. How would what do you what do you think is going on here? Uh, I mean, it seems like people view him as almost some some kind of connection to to God or the Egyptian gods, uh, and they're looking to have themselves judged to see if they're worthy of you know whatever um <clears throat> harrow and his followers are planning to do to to change the the world as they see it so um it's it feels like a religious cult and this is, these are people looking to see if they're worthy enough to be among them when the time comes for them to carry out their their plan for changing the world yeah and it's interesting you know i haven't read any of the moon knight comics but i did some research and prep for this episode and arthur in the comics is just like this mad scientist like here, he's like this occult leader. So it's it's kind of a, a, a big change in, in how the story goes. Um, so these people that are reaching out to Arthur to be judged in Amit's name, is that to be able to join his crew and, you know, have the tattoo and be mercenaries for Arthur? Or is that just, what, what do you think, what is the end game there? Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily something where they're looking to try to be part of like the the gang or and like you know become like his henchmen or something like that. Because like obviously not not all of those people are physically capable of being henchmen. I think some people are just they think that what whatever powers he has, whatever this this ability he has, and what he's trying to do, they look to him you know as this kind of conduit to something larger and that like they're seeing if they're like i said like they're if they're worthy enough to be you know living among them the the weird thing here is like there's this older lady that approaches him and he he does the thing with his cane and does his tattoo that you know it's a tattoo of scales and it moves and it turns out that she um at some point Maybe even in the future, because this uh, this judgment is not just searching for good people based on the past and the present, but also the future. That she did something bad, but she seemed like such a nice person, Brad. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Right. Whereas, like all these people that joined Arthur's group that probably got judged and they got the tattoo and they're now shooting it at Stephen. They don't seem like nice people. So I don't know anything here, but do you think that maybe the judgment that he's looking for is not like bad people and not the good people? Uh, I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, part of me thinks that maybe it's just a matter of, um, you know, Amit being maybe looking for people who will help further, you know, whatever they want to see brought to the world and no one that will like slow them down or have a perspective that stands in the way of their own. Yeah. 
So Arthur notices Stephen in the the audience, and but um, Stephen's unable to return to Scarab, even though he wants to. And of course, people begin to try to pry from his hands, and we have that moment that I mentioned earlier, where we flash forward in time, or in Stephen's memory of things, to now the people are all around all around him have been taken out, and Stephen now has blood. Like on his hands, like literally, Stephen literally has blood on his hands, Brad. And the voice, the voice, uh, then says, "Oh no, the idiot's back," which I think is one of, one of the funnier moments of of the show. How how clever is the narrative structure of this? Like, usually Marvel, you'd want to see the action, right? Yeah, but they're literally cutting out the action. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's it accomplishes it's it's both funny and it also like helps to keep the the audience as disoriented as Steven is and uh in some ways it's uh cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except for the next scene where there's this big car chase sequence where he's uh commandeered a, a cupcake truck of some sort and uh during this car chase sequence he loses moments in time and there's these funny moments where like you know, a mercenary comes on board and he's smushing cupcakes in the mercenary's face. There's, uh, he tries to uh, cut off uh, a farmer and the woman that's driving the truck like flips him off. And there's a uh, him driving. Uh, you know, he wake. Uh, he comes back to consciousness as Mark at one point, in, or as uh, Stephen. And it turned out that Mark was driving backwards down this windy road. So. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one interesting detail I wanted to mention to you, um, I interviewed uh, Mohamed Dieb, who is the director of this first episode, and uh, I asked him uh, how they planned out these sequences, whether or not they actually had to figure out uh, what happened during the sequences where Stephen blacks out, um, even though we don't ever get to see what happens. And he said that they they absolutely planned those sequences as if they were going to shoot them. Um, as far as like knowing the action beats and things like that, so they could figure out uh, where Stephen or Mark would end up before Stephen came back into control of the body, so, so that they knew exactly what was going on all the time, even though we'll never see those sequences. Hmm. See, I I had a theory here, Brad, and obviously this doesn't happen in the first four episodes because we've seen the first four episodes, and I wouldn't talk about something if I had seen it, but um. I had a theory that maybe we were going to end up seeing some of these moments of what happened with Mark later on. And the reason why I have that theory is there's a moment in the trailer where we see Oscar Isaac falling and he's falling. It looks like towards like grass area, like high up in the, uh, like in the air. I'm not sure if you remember that moment. And to me, it feels like that moment could be the moment before he wakes up with the dislocated jaw. Yeah, I think that that's probably the case. I wonder if they just maybe shortened it to make it just like, I, I don't know. So you don't think that we will see any of those moments? I, I don't I don't necessarily want to say that because I feel like there's always a possibility that they could cut to like little moments like that. You know, if uh, especially if they do something where mark and steven maybe finally become one maybe we'll get flashes of all those memories that now become part of of steven's memory if that's something that happens you know in the future um but 
but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and yeah, I mean, it would make sense if, you know, there is that quick scene, but it also could be just something where they decided to maybe cut to that scene a little bit later to make it even more, you know, disorienting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So, uh, Steven wakes up in bed thinking it was all a bad dream, but he notices his one fin fish Gus now has two fins and he brings it to the pet store. <laughs> the only thing he, he could find apparently to bring him to the pet store is a blender, which is kind of funny. And it's also the subject of, uh, they released a character poster of the fish today <laughs> in a blender. Um, so he finds out when he's in the pet store that he was actually there yesterday and got a new fish. He doesn't remember that, but he also realizes that he's late. He's late to his very important date. So he makes a run for it. Um, and, uh, actually it's kind of interesting here, Brad, because at the beginning of the show, I feel like us as an audience, if we haven't seen the trailers, if we're just going by like the story, we're all kind of trying to catch up to what's going on. You know, we're trying to figure out like, you know, why is he have shackles in this? You know, like we're, we're trying to figure, you know, someone calls him a different name, like what's going on. And I feel like at this point we are ahead of the character. We kind of get what's going on way before the character gets what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Steven discovers that he's actually two days late for his date and he's lost two days of his life. What do you think at this point that Steven thinks is going on? Like, do you, Does he know that there's an alternate? Like, I don't think he knows there's an alternate personality at this point. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I, I'm sure it's just a, a matter of him just getting more and more worried that this, what he seems to think is a sleep disorder, is getting worse. You know, he doesn't understand why he's, like, sleeping so much or, like, has is losing track of time and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. So at home, Stephen discovers a hidden compartment in his apartment featuring a flip phone and a key. The key has a keychain with a tag that says the letter U on it. What's that for? We don't know. Uh, the phone rings. He picks up and he's talking to Layla, a woman who he doesn't know, but apparently knows him. And she's been trying to reach him for months. She's been calling over and over again, been texting. He's been missing. Um, anything interesting here? Uh, no, you know, this just uh, makes the mystery even greater and starts to lead into the idea that there's something going on even deeper that Stephen has no idea about. Um, and it's, it's the thing, obviously, that we're already privy to, uh, that we've assumed, that we've understood just because, you know, we've seen trailers and stuff like, like that. But uh, he still has yet to, to figure it out. Yeah. I will mention that when he was on his phone, he does go through the list of people that called him and there was a name on there other than Layla. Everybody's a Layla. Like Layla just keeps on calling. But there's one call from Duchamp on there. Mm -hmm. Someone listed as Duchamp. And there's a character in the comics named Jean-Paul Duchamp, who, a.k.a. Frenchie, who Mark meets in the comic. Mark meets in Africa uh, when he was a mercenary and... Uh, an encounter with the an Egyptian god turns him into a superhero, and he's kind of like a sidekick of sorts. Will any of that come into play in the series? We don't know. It could just be one of those fun Marvel Easter eggs. But okay, uh, so Stephen has a whole moment with a uh, with 
flashing lights and there's a scary lengthy figure approaching him from a dark hallway. And I, I think one of the things I really dig about this show is that it's, it's when we were talking about it being different than other Marvel stuff, like we've never seen horror kind of like in, in this way, I, I'm sure we'll see it in Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness. But uh, what did you think of this whole sequence? Yeah, this is uh, very cool stuff. Uh, you know, it feels like it has inspiration of, from Guillermo del Toro, uh, which is actually one of the, the filmmakers that uh, Mohamed Diab talked about influencing his own visual style. So, yeah, it's a, a very cool sequence and definitely more, I guess, unnerving than uh, a lot of the other stuff we've seen in, in Marvel before. By the way, your interview with the director is up on Slash Home. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to go check out Brad's interview. It's you actually, also interviewed uh, the, yeah, I interviewed the other uh, directors because uh, Mohamed Dia for these first four episodes directed episodes one and three, and then Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, the directing duo behind The Endless, uh, directed episodes two and four. So uh, both of those interviews are up now, and they're they're spoiler-free too, so you don't have to worry about ruining anything for upcoming episodes. So Yeah. And um, so the, this character here, well, and, and the other thing I think that's interesting with the show is it has these horror elements, but it's always kind of like undercut with comedy. So here there's like that big lengthy figure guy coming through the hallway. And then by the time it gets to the elevator, it's this old lady with him having to pretend that he lost a contact lens. So it, it, it always like kind of gets undercut with comedy. Um, and the character here with the big skull head is the uh, the person that's voicing, uh, voiced by F. Murray Abraham. It's a character named Konsu. Konshu. Konshu? Yeah. That was K-H-O-N-S-U. Konshu? Konshu. Konshu. Okay, well, that's how you pronounce that, apparently. Um, now, you did say, Brad, that there was less Marvel um you know easter eggs in the show and that that is 100 percent true there's a lot less connections to marvel there's a lot more connections to egyptian mythology in this show than there are other marvel things indeed uh yeah and uh so conchu i should say in egyptian mythology is an ancient egyptian god of the moon his name means traveler and this might relate to the perceived nightly travel of the moon across the sky. And uh, the God was uh, part of uh, creating the passage of time and Conchu was instrumental in the creation of new life and all living creatures. How much is that going to come into play here? I don't know. I will also mention that in popular culture, there was a film. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this film, Brad, but there's a film called, uh, Night at the museum, and uh, in it, uh, the tablet of Akamura, which gives inanimate objects the ability to come to life at night, is powered by Konchu. Oh, interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So that that, that means nothing to the show. I'm sorry for the the distraction here. But um, so Arthur finds Stephen back at the museum, and that's when we kind of learn about Amit who is, uh, again, we're going to take a sidetrack here for a second, Egyptian god who stopped waiting for sinners to commit their crime and would punish them preemptively. At least that's what we're explained to here. The interesting thing is uh, it's actually kind of based on this Egyptian 
uh, mythology where Amet was a beast associated with the time with the time of judgment depicted in the book of the dead Amet is a composite female creature with the head of a crocodile the front legs of a lion the hindquarters of a hippopotamus uh, those souls whose hearts did not balance in the scale of truth were devoured by this beast and thus the person was uh, consigned to oblivion so there's like a there's a whole thing here if you want to look up, I think we actually have a piece on the sun slash which I'll link. But um, I like that there's kind of like shades of minority report here where at least I'm not sure if this was true in the Egyptian version of this, but in the show version, Amit uh, decided to commit sinners preemptively, kind of like the precogs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought of that too. Um. Okay. Uh, oh, I should also mention. Um, well, uh, well. First of all, um, Arthur argues that if Amit had been free, she would have prevented Hitler and countless other murderers and maniacs. So, Brad, sounds like we should let her out, right? Yes. <laughs> sounds like a good idea. Um, but I, I should also mention that. Uh, that the top of Arthur's cane is these two crocodile heads. Didn't notice that in my first viewing. Also in his tattoo is the two crocodile heads. And uh, in the gift shop, at one point when we see them in the the storage room, we see Stephen with a box of crocodile stuffed animals. Uh, they're wearing like Egyptian headpieces. So well, a lot of Egyptian uh, mythology references in the, the series. So, um, so Arthur explains... Uh, that she was betrayed by her fellow gods and even her own avatar. And we have probably the the best series of fast jokes in the episode. Did you like the avatar jokes, Brad? Oh, yeah, for, of course. It was, it's, it's a nice little throwaway line, but it was amusing nonetheless. I didn't even notice the anime part of it. Like, because it's like, blue people love that film. And then, like, uh, Arthur says something. He's like, oh, oh you mean the anime? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Arthur tried to reason with Steven. He knows about the voice in his head, he hears in his head, and uh, maybe in the next couple episodes you'll learn why he knows about that. Uh, Arthur tries to make judgment of Stephen, but the scales do not settle, and Arthur realizes that there is chaos in him. And do you think this is based on the, the multiple personalities? or Because he already knows that he's the avatar of, of Conchu, right? I... I'm not sure that at this point, does he? I don't know. Well, he, but he just said like, he knows that there's a voice in his head. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe he's not yet sure exactly what, which, that, which voice it is. Yeah, okay. So he or knows what that, or what that, or what that means necessarily. Yeah. 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 Um, so wh- why do you think there's chaos in him? I mean, it likely has to deal with, the the dissociative identity disorder because it, it is creating literal chaos for his life but maybe there's maybe there's even more to that than that because of um you know the involvement of country's powers you know being imbued to mark specter and so yeah there's there's probably layers to it there so mark escapes but uh he's back at work they'll never find him at the museum that he works at that they were just at earlier when he escaped brad They'll never find him there. Um, 
and a jackal-like creature uh, starts hunting him. He escapes to a bathroom where he discovers for the first time that the reflection in the mirror, his reflection is talking to him. It's Mark, his other personality. And it's actually interesting because there's other points in this episode where the mirror doesn't match him. Does that yeah. make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, so if you go back, uh, there's some kind of like a fun, like fight clubby kind of, um, you know, rewards a second viewing kind of thing. Um, so Mark pleads to let him save us. And Steven finally relents. And we finally seen Moon Knight in his, in all his glory, like a mummy, like, uh, I mean, people like to compare him to Batman, mummy, Batman, uh, out for the first time, taking out the creature. What, what did you think of this whole sequence? It's definitely a long lead up to what we've been waiting to see for a long time. You know, he, we, we've been waiting to see him put on the suit as it's uh, referred to and to see this happen. So it's a, a cool moment to finally see taking place. And uh, it's great suit design. It's a, it's definitely a cool character. Like he has the, you know, a, a easily recognizable silhouette and yeah, it's, it's a, a great moment. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I love this. And I, I feel like it, like the end of this episode really doesn't feel like the end of a TV episode. As you said before, it, it feels like it, it, we're cutting in the middle of like a movie or something. Yeah. Um, it definitely makes me want, uh, it leaves me wanting more, which I guess is a good thing. Um, we should talk about the director of this episode, Mohamed Daib. How do you pronounce? I think it's, Dieb. I think it's Dieb. Dieb. Um, he, I have not seen any of his films, so I, I'm embarrassed to admit that. Um, his directorial debut was this film called Cairo 678 that was released a month before the Egyptian Revolution. And it's actually deemed by the New York Times as, quote, unmistakably a harborer of that revolution. Um, he later went on to write the blockbuster Egyptian franchise, uh, L. I'm gonna mispronounce all these things. The English translation is the island. There's a series of films called the Island. So I'll say that, um, and they're considered uh, the highest-grossing Egyptian and Arabic films of all time. So he he didn't direct those. He wrote them. The films revolve around a tyrannical drug lord on an island in the Upper Egypt, and uh, the one of them was the Egyptian entry to the Oscars, and. He also directed a film called Clash, which was about the fall of the Egyptian revolution and told entirely within the confines of a police riot truck. And um, Brad, have you seen any of his movies? I have not. Um, I After talking to him and also after hearing Benson and Moorhead uh, talk about their um, love for both Clash and another film he has called Amira, uh, I wanted to go out of my way to check out his movies to get a better grasp on uh, his storytelling style and whatnot. But uh, yeah, apparently he has um, a lot of praise and he's uh, turned a lot of heads in, in Hollywood. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, talking with him, did you gain any insights on this episode or on, on him as a filmmaker? No, we, I, I asked about his cinematic influences and what he wanted to to bring to Moon Knight. And in addition to Guillermo del Toro, he also mentioned Alejandro González Iñárritu uh, and Alfonso Cuarón, um, as well as uh, a couple Iranian filmmakers uh, as as well, including the director behind um, uh, A Hero and A Separation. So uh, you can 
hear more about that in my uh, or read about that rather in my interview with him on Slash Film. Yeah. Um, he directs every other episode of the series, but as you mentioned earlier, there he's exchanging the honor with Justin Benson and Aaron Moore, Moorhead. Um, we'll talk about them next week, but if you haven't seen any of their, any of the, their films, I would strongly urge you to go check out The Endless, which is one of the weirdest, strangest films I've seen in the past five years. Have you seen The Endless? I haven't seen it. Ah, you gotta go see it, Brad. It's it's so strange. If you like uh, weird uh, sci-fi kind of stuff, I'm not sure where it's available. I think it was on Netflix when I watched it a few years ago. But um, they they seem like really cool. I don't know. I I I see a huge career for them in the future. What was it like talking with them? They were great. Yeah, really easy to talk to, and uh, they were they're big slash film fans, so they were happy to talk to us. And so yeah, it was a good good talk with them. They're also going to be doing. Uh, the second season of Loki too, so they're uh, they've got a, a new home at Marvel that they're playing around in. That's cool. I could totally see their their whole thing vibing with with Loki. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that this series is written by Jeremy Slater, who uh, was behind the Exorcist TV series, which I haven't seen but had great reviews. Uh, was de- he developed Umbrella Academy for Netflix, which I liked. But he was also the credited writer behind Josh Trank's Fantastic Four movie, which he he might not uh, he might not be responsible for how that movie turned out. And we actually have an article on Slash Film. Um, yeah, he talked about uh, what went wrong there and and whatnot. Yeah, I'll link it in the show notes. Moon Knight head writer explains what went wrong with the 2015 Fantastic Four movie. So I'll, I'll I'll leave you with that if you want to go check that out. We have a lot of other Moon Knight coverage that you want to check out, too. We had a lot of cool uh, features today talking about the horror elements of the series and uh, how it kind of has the, the best elements of some of the Marvel Netflix TV shows like Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Um, lots of good stuff breaking down all the uh, all the things that make Moon Knight uh, great, even just based on this first episode. There's a lot more to talk about as the other episodes debut, but uh, we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Yeah, I think it's uh it's 1 p.m. on the West Coast here, and I think we might have published at least 12 different Moon Knight articles today <laughs> since midnight. So uh, there's that. Uh, I, I want to point you to Danielle uh, wrote a wonderful piece called Moon Knight's Depiction of Disassociation Made Me Feel Seen. I don't think we really uh, at all dived into um, – kind of the metaphor of this all and um well not even metaphor but like it's it's, yeah it's a very uh accurate kind of depiction about how uh people with dissociative identity disorder did feel and uh how disorienting it can be for them and the the kind of trauma and, and stuff that it causes and how uh you know you feel like you have to pick your life back up after you've you know checked out of it for a certain period of time but yeah she wrote a very personal uh story about um how like the scene that depicted uh, really, yeah, made her feel seen. Yeah. Uh, But if you want to know a little bit about that uh, Egyptian mythology, there's more of that there. There's more on some of the Easter eggs that we, we touched upon. So if you want to know more about that character that uh, uh, might've been the influence, like might be connected to that. um, What do you call those guys that like uh, statue guys? Yeah. 
living statue, I guess would be. Oh what yeah, you'd, yeah. You'd call it. Uh, we have an article on that. There, we also have an article whole... on the the music too. You'll notice that there's a, a very kind of unique soundtrack. There's like some uh, Egyptian rap and stuff like that um, that you'll hear in this episode and also uh, other other episodes too. There's um, music that you probably won't re- won't recognize, and so we uh, we're gonna be covering that as well. Um, Shania Russell did a piece uh, for the first episode about the the music from the debut. Yeah, I didn't um, bring up the composer in this episode, but we'll probably talk about him next week. But he's an Egyptian composer. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, we'll have some more time because this one was like setting up so much stuff. Uh, it's Usually we end this thing with speculation, but I feel wrong doing that since Brad and I have seen the next three episodes. Um, is there any speculation we could touch on that seems fair, Brad? Um, I don't know. I guess like if there's any speculation to be made, it's how Moon Knight will eventually tie into the larger MCU. Because from Mm -hmm. what we've seen in these first four episodes, uh, it's a very isolated story. There aren't any characters from the MCU. There's barely even a reference to things that have happened uh, in in the MCU. There's, there's, There's like really only one stealthy Easter egg that we caught that references uh, something in a previous Marvel TV show on Disney plus. And so I'm, I'm most curious, I guess, as to, yeah, where Moon Knight is going to land at the end of this uh, series and how he'll become part of the, the larger MCU. I don't have any theories on that. I, I feel like it's going to be very self-contained. I feel like this is going to be the first one that feels very like, in its own little corner. Yeah. If anything, I do wonder if maybe where we'll see the connections is if, it, if it's going to end up being tied to something like Eternals or Blade or something like that, because those seem like the characters that you could easily have some kind of connection to, mostly because the Eternals were around for thousands of years. So um, maybe even had interaction with some of these like actual Egyptian gods, what have you. And then, you know, Blade obviously being a character that kind of has ties to, you know, the that mystical monster kind of side of the Marvel Comics yeah. universe. I think that that's we'll see that there, especially since Blade had a, a voice cameo in the one of the credit scenes for Eternals as well. So it really seemed like Eternals, like, you know, how Guardians of the Galaxy was kind of like the entry point to the to the cosmic side of the Marvel universe. And then we, we had the entry point into the multiverse side of the Marvel universe. It felt like Eternals was going to be the entry point into kind of like this historical, uh, I don't know. It's hard to like define what it like, is. Like the ancient side of yeah. the, the Marvel cinematic universe. And I wonder if the, was that movie a success? I don't even know uh, the, the box office. I, I wish uh, Ryan was here to let's see the Eternals. We're gonna look this up live. I, I know critically it was not considered a success, right? Like yeah, it so seemed it, like it made over four hundred and two million worldwide. Is that good? Is that is that considered a success? I mean, it's I I think so. I don't, I'm not necessarily sure what the the budget was. It's definitely not as high as. Uh, most of the other Marvel Studios movies, but you have to well, the budgets. Claim, Wikipedia claims two hundred million, and that comes from uh, the Associated Press. So the Associated Press has a quote of two hundred million. 
And that's be- probably before marketing, which would mean it maybe broke even after home video. Maybe. I, I just wonder if, like, the reception of that movie, like, if Guardians of the Galaxy was not received in the way it was, right? Like, mm-hmm. it was such a home run. Do you think Marvel would have went so hard into the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe? Would they, would they have still been like, oh, we are confident and we, we know that this is where we want to go? Or do you think, like, they would have pulled back? Um, It's a good question. I feel like they probably would have, they might have had to reconfigure some things. Um, but I also think that, like, the interconnectivity of the Marvel Cinematic Universe makes it possible that you don't necessarily have to rely on a single franchise to keep expanding that side. You know, you can you can keep character stories going by having them pop in other movies and things like that. So at this point, Feige is smart enough and he knows so much about like the MCU and where they want to go that they probably have contingency plans where if something doesn't work, they know how to like recover from it and still stay on the track that they want to move forward with. Um, But yeah, I think that's there's plenty of room for Eternals to still have a presence in the MCU, even if it's not as like its own franchise. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with that. Um, yeah. So, uh, we, we, as always, we ask you if you have any questions, comments, speculation, theories, things you noticed that we didn't, you can send them to us at Peter at social.com and we might mention it in a future episode. Um, and yeah, I, I think we covered about everything. Um, I I am really digging this show. I am, I, I think it's a, a really interesting and compelling entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm curious to see where it goes and how Moon Knight fits into everything. And um, yeah, I, I I I think I'm most digging. Well, I'm most digging two things. I probably should have said this in my brief thoughts. Uh, but I'm most digging the writing. I think the writing is just really clever and interesting, the way they approached the the multi multiple personality, the um the the characters of it and how they're I don't know, the the actions, reactions. The uh and my second thing is obviously Oscar Isaac, uh, his performance is just not anything I was expecting. And it's it's delightful. Um, do do you have any ending thoughts on this, Brad? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, having seen the first four episodes, uh, I think there's a lot of interesting things uh, and surprising turns for fans in store that's coming up that will make for an interesting story. Um, especially episode episode four is really going to be the one uh, I think that throws people for for a loop. It's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, after that because it's uh it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. You can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com and uh, check the show notes because I put a lot of the the Moon Knight coverage in there. This podcast can be found on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter.slashfilm.com. And please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>